0: turn to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 44 to 46. Uh, We're going to be covering two parables. As everyone knows, we're going through the parables of Jesus. Uh, We're going to be covering two this morning, the parable of the hidden treasure and the the parable of the pearl of great price. Um, And these are two uh, parables that basically are, are serving the same purpose. They mean the same thing. Uh, Jesus, in fact, tells them back to back. Uh, He even uses the word again between them to say uh, this is the second parable is just another way of illustrating the lesson of the first. So they're in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. I read a a quote several years ago that I wrote down, and and I've seen different variations of it, and I'm not sure who said it. I've seen it uh, attributed to different people. But it says this, it says, Scripture is like a river, broad and deep, shallow enough for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough for an elephant to swim. And, And I believe that. I believe that, in other words, Scripture is simple enough for a child to understand, but yet it's deep enough and layered enough for the most mature Christian to keep coming back to it over and over and over and over again and just keep finding things new. Um, and I and I bring that up because our parables today are are a great example of this. They are going to teach us two very profound truths. And one of these truths that's going to teach us is so simple that even a child could probably read that parable. A five year old, six year old child could read that parable and tell you what the meaning of it is. It's it's just very very simple. It's very straightforward. Uh, but there's a second truth. In these parables, it's not quite as easy to, to see, uh, but it's just as profound. And, 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 and you'll see it, it's found in the actions of the man. And so we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But there's really two truths that we want to be looking at today. So we're going to look at the first one, uh, the parable of the hidden treasure. Well, this is found in verse 44. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, this first parable would have been very relatable. You remember parables are, are earthly stories that have a heavenly meaning or a spiritual meaning. And and if you would have been telling this parable or this story in Jesus' day, this would have been very uh, relatable. Um, now today, when we have money... We put our money in the bank, we put our money in stocks, we put our money in IRAs, you know, whatever, whatever however you choose to, to put your money. But in that day, it was very common for people to bury their money in the, in the ground. And they did that for a lot of reasons. One of the number one reasons they did, because there was so much war back then. Uh, you think about the land of Judea, it was conquered over and over and over and over again. So so if you've got all your money in the bank or you've put all your money in the temple and, and, a, and a conquering army comes in, where do you think the first place they're going? I mean, they're going to go to find the treasure, right? They're going to the bank, they're going to the temple. So a lot of times when they, in periods of war or periods of battles, people would go get their money wherever they had it and they would bury it in the ground. They would hide it. So it was very common to do that back then. In fact, it was so common that Jesus talks about this in multiple parables. You remember, we haven't covered this one yet. You remember the parable, the talents, where he gives somebody some talents and they go and get more and another person gets talents. But one person went and buried theirs where? You remember that? He buried it in the ground. And so this is something that was very common for people to, uh, to do back then. If I probably went around the eat room, some of y'all probably got relatives that still bury their money in, in the ground somewhere, but we won't go there. Um, so here's in the parable, here's this man in a field, and why he's in the field, we don't know. Um, it, the parable doesn't tell us that. We only know that the field doesn't belong to him, because in a little bit, he's going to go and he's going to buy that field. But he's in the field, he's working some way, he's digging, he's plowing, he's tilling, some form or fashion, he's turning over dirt uh, in, this, in this field. And as he's working in the field, he comes across uh, a treasure. And immediately, when he sees this treasure, he realizes that he's hit pay dirt. He realizes that what's in that ground, and we don't know what, if it was coins or what it was, we don't know, that's not the point. But the point is, when he found that treasure, he realized that he had hit pay dirt, that what he had just seen in that ground was worth way more than anything and everything else that, that he owned. So he immediately covers it back up. Then he goes home and he liquidates everything that he has. He sells his house, he sells his car, he sells his wife, he gets rid of everything, right? He makes everything to cash and he goes back and he and he buys that field in order that he can that he can gain that treasure. Now let me stop right there because I've often thought this, and and I've had other people think this. Some people get a little bit hung up right here on whether or not he did the right thing. In other words, was it ethical for him to do what he did? He finds a treasure. Shouldn't the ethical thing to do, the right thing to do, would be to alert the owner of the field? Anybody ever thought about that? So I want to make sure we understand, this story was told 2,000 years ago, so I want to make sure we understand what the listeners of that day would have, would have thought about that man. Now, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, if you find something and you know who the owner is, you have to return it. Exodus 23, 4 says this, e- even if it's your enemy, it says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray you shall bring it back to him. So if you find your enemy's ox or his horse or his, or his donkey or his sheep or anything that belongs to your enemy or your brother, it doesn't really matter who it is, if you know it belongs to them, then you're obligated by the Old Testament law to, to return that to them. Deuteronomy 22, 1-3 says this, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother... You shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. Is everybody with me there? If you find something and you know it belongs to someone else, doesn't matter if they're a friend, a brother, or an enemy, you are obligated by the Old Testament law to take that back. However, Scripture doesn't say anything about what if you find something and you don't know who the owner is. What are you, what are you supposed to do? Now, this is where the Talmud, anybody here have heard of the Talmud? The Talmud was a, a, a big, I mean, it's, it, it's you remember the old uh, Encyclopedia Britannicus you used to could buy? You know, they would like fill up, well, this is kind of how, what the Talmud looks like. It's like all these commentaries, all these books, and they're all commentaries on the Old Testament law. And what they would try to do is fill in the blanks. If the law didn't specifically say what you were supposed to do, the Talmud, these commentaries, would come in and weigh in on the situation and and tell people what they were supposed to do. So the Talmud teaches two basic principles with regard to lost objects. It did it then, and it still does it today. Number one, it says if there are any distinctive markings identifying the owner... For example, let's say you found somebody's wallet or you found somebody's passport... And, the, and, you, and it says this belongs to so-and-so, then you're obligated to return that. Make sense? Okay, that's what the Talmud says. In other words, you don't know the owner. You don't know them, but yet the fact is they got their name on it, they got something else on there, you're obligated to return it. However, the Talmud says if, if, there is no, if the owner has no reasonable expectation of finding what was lost. So let's say, for example, you find I was at El Jalisco's a few weeks ago and I took my granddaughter out back, and we were just walking around, and I I came across a $5 bill. Now, now, what am I supposed to do with that $5 bill? Right? Because who does it belong to? Nobody knows. Yeah, exactly. So you take it back in. If you if you take it back to the restaurant, by the way, it was found on their property. If you take it back into the restaurant, they don't know who it belongs to, right? Um, so I just went back in and left it as a tip on the table, and it, somebody ended up getting it. It wasn't me, but... But the point was, if you find something like that and you don't know who it belongs to, you're under no obligation to return it. You can, you can keep it. That's what the Talmud would have taught in that day. Okay. Now, that all makes sense. Now, one final thought from the story. We know that the treasure he found in the field did not belong to the owner of the field. How do we know that? Because the owner of the field sold it. Right? If the owner of the field knew the treasure was there, would he have ever sold that field? Absolutely not. I mean, this is a valuable treasure. So we know that the, when the guy uncovered the treasure, he, he, whatever he uncovered did not belong to the owner. It was on that owner's land, but it was like five, finding a $5 bill at El Jalisco's. It didn't belong to them. And this man must have, have known that. So that's what the law taught in that day. So the Jews that were listening to Jesus would not have perceived this man as, as being unethical at all. They would have realized that he was completely in his rights um, under the Jewish rabbinical law to do what he did. By the way, if you really look at it, not only is this not unethical, the man is actually being very fair. Because you understand, he could have taken that treasure right then, loaded it up and drove off. He didn't have to go buy the property. In fact, he could have taken part of the treasure... Uh, and used that to buy the property and kept all of his own stuff, but he didn't do that either. He did the fair thing, he did the right thing. He went, liquidated everything, bought the land fair and square, and obtained the, uh, obtained the treasure. So um, what we find, again, back in the story, he, 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 he locates the treasure, he covers it up, he goes and sells everything that he has and he comes back, and he, and he finds a real estate agent, and he buys that land, and everything's fair and square so that he can, he can gain that treasure. Now, having said all of that about the ethics and all of that kind of thing, keep in mind that's got nothing to do with the parable. This parable is very, very simple. It's about a man who found something so valuable that he sold everything that he had in order to gain that treasure. That's the point. That's the whole, I mean, it's as simple as simple can be. Now, look at the next parable, Matthew 13, 45 to 46. This is the pearl of great price. Jesus immediately goes into this. He says again, now what that tells us, he said, I'm going to give you another parable that basically means the same thing as the first one. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, in this parable, the man in the parable is a in English it's called a merchant in Greek the word is emporos what that means in Greek the man is a wholesale merchant in other words he goes around the world and he he buys things and then he he what he buys he turns around and sells at a at a profit that's his job that's his that's his business and this particular merchant happens to be selling or seeking pearls other people could be Seeking you know rugs or, or or garments or or animals or whatever the case may be, this particular merchant is seeking pearls now, pearls in that day were the equivalent of say a diamond today. If you open the bible you don 't see anything about diamonds diamonds weren 't known they weren 't valued they weren 't i don 't even know if they even knew what they were in that day in that day, the sign of wealth that that you had was pearls first timothy two nine when, when uh, when Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, "'Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, "'modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls.'" So that's what, that was the sign of wealth. That's how a woman would show how much status and how much wealth she had was through pearls. So that was that. Was that. Uh, they were the most valuable gem in the world in that day. Uh, Pliny, just as an aside note, Pliny, the Roman historian said that Cleopatra had two pearls, and each one was worth half a million dollars in today's money. I mean, that, when you had pearls, you were rich. That was, that was a status symbol. Okay, they, That was the big deal. Now, notice, too, when Jesus, when he's teaching, if he ever needs to show something as being priceless, he would use pearls. Uh, remember Matthew 7, 6, he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. He's saying, don't take something that's priceless. Don't take something that's of great value and throw it in with the hogs. So, so he would use pearls in his teaching to, when, he, when he wanted us to see something was of great value or of great price. So the man, this merchant in our parable, is traveling around the world. He's, he's looking for pearls. He's looking for high-quality pearls that he can buy and then turn around and sell. And he finds this one pearl, and immediately when he finds it, remember, this is his job, he's an expert at this, he finds this one pearl, and its, its quality is unlike anything that he's ever seen before. And again, he's seen a lot of pearls through the years because that's what he does. So when he sees it, he knows immediately, this is worth more than anything I've ever seen before. I, I've come across a lot of pearls, but there's nothing like this one. And and just like the man with the treasure in the field, he does the same thing. He goes and he sells everything that he has. He liquidates all his, his personal assets, his business assets, whatever he's got to get enough money, and then go and he buys that pearl. So the point of this parable is the same as the first. Both of these parables are designed to teach us a very simple yet profound truth, and that is the kingdom of heaven is priceless. The, the kingdom of heaven, there's nothing that compares to it. it it's it's worth more than anything. It, 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 only a fool, only a fool wouldn't sell everything they have to gain the kingdom of heaven. That's how much value that it that it has. Nothing else compares to it. And keep in mind, we've said this over the last few weeks, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about salvation, are we not? We're talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ and everything that goes with that, love, mercy, forgiveness, joy, peace, virtue, goodness, heaven, eternal life, all those things are all... That's what he's talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, all the benefits that we gain through salvation and as through being children of, of God. So salvation, all that comes with it, is the most valuable commodity that we will ever encounter... On this earth. As I said, only a fool uh, would not be willing to sell everything he has to gain it. That is the primary meaning, the primary purpose, the primary truth of those two parables. And, I, and it's a simple parable, isn't it? Like I said, even a child could probably read that parable and, and get the meaning of that. That, that. that the kingdom of heaven, salvation, all of its benefits is so valuable. That we'd be a fool not to give give everything else up in order to, to gain that. Okay, now, now that's one truth it teaches, and we could probably go home, but I got another 30 minutes, so I gotta keep going. Now, there is a second truth that is found in these, and and if you're not careful, the first truth is so easy to see that you'll just see that one and you'll miss completely the other truth. These two very simple parables, whether you understand it or not, are describing how to be saved. These two parables, whether you get it or not or see it or not, are actually describing saving faith and what saving faith looks like. Let me explain what I mean. Not too long ago, I was listening to some sermons by John Piper on saving faith. I was doing something about saving faith and I was listening to some different people... And he was describing faith, and you know, if I ask you this morning, describe faith. What is faith? Most of us would go to uh, go to the Bible and say uh, faith is the evidence of things not seen, right? But but I, if I ask you, well, give me some more details. Tell me what faith is. You might say, well, faith is believing in Jesus Christ, and and you you would try to explain it. Well, that's what I was looking for. I was trying to explain saving faith, and. I've started listening to these sermons by John Piper, and I want to give you a few of his quotes how he describes saving faith. He said this saving faith is seeing and savoring Jesus Christ as supremely glorious. Receiving Christ as your supreme treasure is what faith is. An essential element of saving faith is treasuring Christ above everything else. And then he goes on to say, faith includes the embrace of Jesus as our all satisfying treasure. Now, as I was listening to him, my first thought was, man, he's overcomplicating things a little bit, right? I mean, shouldn't we, when we're witnessing, I don't want to really go witness to somebody and say, hey, you know, you need to make Jesus Christ your all-satisfying treasure. Shouldn't I just go to somebody and say, believe in Jesus? I mean, shouldn't we just keep it simple? Now, other people evidently had asked him the same question because in one of his sermons... This was his answer. He said this, We live in a superficially Christianized society where lost people think they do believe in Jesus. In most of my witnessing to unbelievers and nominal Christians, the command, Believe in Jesus and you shall be saved, is virtually meaningless. Drunks on the street say they do. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe in Jesus. Elderly people who hadn't been to church in 40 years say they believe in Jesus. In other words, every stripe of world-loving church attendees say they believe in Jesus. Now, when he said that, immediately I knew what he meant. See, one of my pet peeves right now is calling people Christians. Have you noticed how the media today will call somebody Christian? Because used to, a Christian meant you were a follower of Christ. And being a follower of Christ meant that you do what Christ did, right? I mean, you walk in His shoes. You walk worthy of His calling. But today, people are called Christian who are doing things that Jesus would never do. Does that make sense? Um, not too long ago, y'all, you remember the guy in Tennessee, the 50-year-old guy? This one really got my, got my goat. The 50-year-old guy that ran off with a 15-year-old girl. Did y'all see that in Tennessee? And He ended up in Oregon at a hippie commune. So he goes out to this hippie commune that's like a nudist colony. You can't make this stuff up, right? So they go out there and the in the article when they finally called him, they wrote an article and they said that they 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 went to this nudist colony and they end up leaving because of their Christian beliefs. And I'm like, "Are, are you kidding me? They're they're not Christians, people. They're doing things that Jesus wouldn't do. They're not little Christ. They're not followers of Jesus. But you see, that word Christian is just a brand today for somebody to put on this group. They're Christian, they're Muslim, they're this or that and the other. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. It doesn't have that, that, that weight of what it used to mean. In the same way, that's what John Piper is saying. He's saying that the word believe has lost its meaning that you can witness to, to people who are unmarried and living together. And they'll say, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus, we follow Jesus. But they're doing things that Jesus would tell them not to do. Isn't what Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Do what I tell you to do. So now, in, what Piper was saying, instead of now, he's very cognizant about the fact that sometimes, instead of just saying, do you believe in Jesus, he will say something along the line, is Jesus your supreme treasure? Is Jesus your top priority in your life? In other words, he takes that simple, do you believe in Jesus, and he has to explain it. He has to go a little bit further. And the more I thought about what he was saying, the more I saw the truth in it. That, that when the Bible says we are to believe in Christ, it, it means that we are to throw everything in with Him. Right? It means He is to become our greatest treasure. So with the rest of our time here this morning, I want us to look at Scripture a little bit deeper in this area. And I want you to see that when a person becomes a Christian, a true Christian, they're made into something I'll call a Jesus treasurer. That unless a man is born again into a Jesus treasurer, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay. See, we all know not everybody's going to be saved, Right? the Bible tells us many are on the broad road. How many are on the... just a few. It's not going to be 50% saved and 50% unsaved. It's going to be a few are being saved. But I want to try to show as, as this second truth this morning that these parables are teaching us that become a, becoming a Jesus treasurer is an essential part of, of the, what it takes to be saved. So I, I've just got a few minutes here, so I want to start with a question. If I ask you this morning, what must I do to be saved? I walk up to you, somebody walks up to you this morning, and they ask you, what must I do to be saved? Now, we all agree there's not a more important question that could be asked, right? This is the most important question that a man, a a woman, or a child could ask of of anybody. What must I do to be saved? So somebody walks up to you this morning and asks you that question, what do you say to them? Now, I want you to look at the way... Or in fact, let me. I want you to look at several ways that the Bible answers this question. Now, when I think about that question, I'm immediately drawn back to the story of the Philippian jailer. Everybody remember the story of the Philippian jailer, Paul and is it Paul and Silas or Paul? I think it was Paul and Silas, right? I get Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas. I think it was Paul and Silas. They're in the jail. There's an earthquake. Their chains fall off, and the jailer sees it, and he's going to kill himself because he just assumes everybody's escaped. I'm going to have to kill myself. Paul says, don't do that, we're still here. And then in Acts 16, 30, 31, the jailer asked Paul, sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, listen, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. There you go. There, that's usually what I go to when I think about that question. Now, but, but I, won't, I can't stop there. See, my responsibility, and I take this very seriously, my responsibility as a teacher of God's Word is not just to repeat the Bible. Do do you understand if if a teacher, all they do is repeat the Bible, anybody can get up here and read it? Right? If I just just say, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, my job is to explain what that means. Everybody with me? Anybody can just say, oh, just tell them to believe in the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? See, that's my job, is not just to read the Bible but to, to explain it so that you can see the truth and the meaning behind it. So when Paul tells the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus, what does Paul mean by that? What is he telling him to do? What does that mean to, to believe in something? See, I ask this because it's obvious from the Bible that there, are, there is a type of belief in Jesus that does not lead to salvation. We see this in all the Gospels, but especially in the Gospel of John. I'll give you three examples. John chapter 2, 23 to 25 said, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. See, here were some people that believed in Jesus because they saw the healings and they, saw, they believed in him as a miracle worker. But they didn't believe in him as Messiah they didn't believe in Him as God, as Lord, as Savior. Everybody see that? And therefore it says Jesus didn't give Himself over to them. There was no relationship there. They just believed in Him as a certain thing, but there was no, that was not salvation. In John 7, 3 through 5, His brothers said to Him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. They saw the works, they saw the miracles. They said, man, get out of this one-horse town and go up to Jerusalem where all the bigwigs are so everybody can see what you're doing. And that sounds good, right? It sounds like, boy, his brothers are on board. But look at the comment that John adds at the end of that verse. For not even his brothers believed in him. See, believed in him. See, they didn't believe in him as Lord, as Savior, as Messiah. They saw him as, a, as, a, as maybe a great miracle worker, but, but they didn't see him for who he really was. In John 8, 30-32, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. That sounds good. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you keep my word, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. See, there is a belief in Jesus that does not rise to the level of salvation. Everybody see that? I mean, that's incredibly important. So when when Paul says to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's got to mean something more than that. He's got to mean something more than that. So what does he, does he mean? Again, a lot of people believe in Jesus to some extent. So I, I want to know, Paul, when you say believe in Jesus, what do you mean? Let's go a little bit deeper. Well, let me let's look at some other ways. The Bible answers that question, what must I do to be saved? John 1.12 says this, But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So one of the conditions for salvation is that we believe. One of the conditions is that we, what? Receive, right? Um, Acts 3.19 says this, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. There's another condition, you have to repent. Hebrews 5.9, being made perfect, he became the source of salvation to all who what? Obedience. So we've got receive him, believe in him, uh, uh, repent, uh, obey him. Jesus himself answered this question in a variety of ways. Matthew 18.3 uh, says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like what? Children, you'll never get into heaven. So childlikeness, a humility, has to be a part of the condition for salvation. Self-denial, Mark 8, 34 to 35, If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So self-denial is a, is a part of, of the condition to be saved. Um, elsewhere, Jesus says, you got to love me more than anybody else. Matthew ten thirty seven. whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom, you want to know me, then you put me at the top. I've got to be your first priority. I've got to be your, your treasure. We, we've got to renounce all we have, Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, those are some of the conditions, the ways that the Bible answers that question, what must I do to be saved? Therefore, if you put all that together, telling someone to believe in Jesus must include, must mean that we receive Him, we turn from our sin, we obey Him, we humble ourselves like little children, and we love Him more than we love our family, our possessions, and even our own life. Everybody see that? When you say, believe in me, that's what he's saying right there. All those things go into what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. But here's the question this morning. What is the one thing that holds all those conditions together? What's the one thing that that unites them? What's the one thing that compels a person to do all of those things? And of all places, I think the answer is found in today's parables. Let's go back and read that again. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Look at at the next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice something about these two parables. The first one says the kingdom of heaven is like a what? A treasure. The second one says the kingdom of heaven is like a... A merchant. It's like a man. See, when you look at these two parables, the first thing that pops out at us is the value of the treasure. And that's, that's correct. The treasure is invaluable. But you cannot miss the second thing in both of these parables is the actions of the man. You see, Jesus could have easily said the kingdom of heaven is like a a, a treasure whose value is incomparable. And, and he could have moved on, but he didn't say that, did he? And both of, the imper- both of those include a man who has to do something to gain that treasure. See, what he, what he's saying is the kingdom of heaven isn't just about the treasure, it's about what you do to have to get that treasure. There has to be something you do to obtain that, that treasure. See, again, these parables are not just declaring the value of the kingdom, they're, just, they're declaring the actions of the people who enter the kingdom. How do you get in? How do you obtain that treasure? You see, these parables... Whether we realize it or not, are describing saving faith. You see, both both of these people discover a treasure. They discover something that's so valuable, and they literally are compelled by joy. They're, they're literally com- they think, man, this is the greatest thing I've ever found. I nothing compares to it. And they basically put everything else aside in order to get that treasure. And, and what is that treasure? Well, guys, it's got to be Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that treasure, isn't it Jesus? Isn't that what it's all about? You see, one of my favorite scriptures that I found a while back, and I just keep going back to it again and again and again, is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, at some point, if you're here today and you're saved, God pulled the blinders off your eyes. He literally shone a light in your heart. And his purpose was so you could see Jesus for who he really is. See, you had heard about Jesus. You had read about Jesus. You maybe even studied about Jesus or heard a story about Jesus, but you didn't see him for who he was, did you? You didn't see him as this valuable treasure, this thing that was worth everything. But one day, riding in your car, kneeling at your bedside, sitting on a pew, God shone the light. And all of a sudden you saw him for who he really is. You saw him for how beautiful, how glorious, how valuable he really was. And at that moment, nothing else mattered, did it? You had to have him. See, that's salvation. That's that's entering the kingdom. And and by the way, when you do that, you're you're not you you not you're not just happy to gain the treasure, you're literally compelled. It's like nothing else matters but to know Jesus. It becomes a joy to leave everything else in the world and, 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 and buy that treasure, okay? It's a joy to follow him. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying here today. I'm not trying to complicate faith. I'm not trying to make it more than, 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 than it needs to be or, or what it is. That's, that's not what I'm, what I'm trying to do. And in fact, if I were talking to a child this morning... I think it's the wise thing to do and the right thing to do and the good thing to do not to overcomplicate saving faith. Everybody with me? If I was talking to a child, I would just say you need to trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus to be who he says he is, to be your Savior. And I think that's plenty, I think children can understand that, and that's how you talk to, that's how you would talk to a child. And I think if they're truly saved as they grow, They'll grow into a knowledge of Jesus that's, as they mature, right? Uh, up to be other things. But listen, you and I are adults, right? We, we've got to realize listen to me, there is more involved in this than Jesus just being your Savior. They, see, there are biblical passages that call for us to think, to reflect. Let me give you one example. Let's go back to where we were earlier John 1 11 through 13. It says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Okay, here's my question. Receive Him as what? To all who received Him, you, you become a child of God. So here's my question. Receive Him as what? Messiah? King? Lord? Friend? Savior? Provider? financial advisor, physician, what's the answer? Everything. See, you can't say, I want Jesus as my Savior, but when it comes to my money, you don't tell me what to do. I'm my own financial advisor. Listen, if if that's your attitude, you don't know him. See, that's my point, is when you come to Jesus, he is our everything. He's our treasure. Everything else get sold. I I don't need those things anymore. I've got him because he's my Messiah, my Lord, my Savior, my financial advisor, my physician, my provider. He's all those things to me. We have to receive him as all those things. You see, that was the problem in the book of John. They received him as a miracle worker, but they didn't want him as their Lord. They, They wanted him as a miracle worker, but they didn't want him as a Savior. And see, that, that, that's not the, when, John, when, when Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not what he's saying. He says, you receive him as everything. He is your treasure. He is all things to you. And see, as I said earlier, I believe that you can tell a child, trust in Jesus, and if they come into a relationship with him, they'll grow where Jesus becomes all those things to them. He, he, he deals with that. That's his business. But let me tell you what you cannot do. You cannot pick and choose with Jesus. You cannot say, I want you as Savior, but I don't want you as Lord. I want you as Savior, but I don't want you as my financial advisor. You cannot do that. It's all or nothing. He's either your treasure or he's not. He's your everything or he's, or he's not. And see, that is why I believe today's simple parables are so profound. Because it's telling us that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to receive Jesus as your treasure. He is incomparable in value. Nothing on this earth compares to, to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these parables that we've been going through, and, and I know how much they they've mean, uh, have meant to me. And I just pray as I always do that, uh, you know, I, I, I do my best, Lord, to try to explain. But I know, uh, you know, we're human beings, and there's just only so much we can do. So I just turn it over to You, Holy Spirit, that You'll just drive this truth home today in all of our hearts that Jesus has to be our everything. He has to be our everything. He is worth everything. That only a fool would hold something back and, and, and to not gain him. He's worth more, invaluably more, inconsequentially more, than anything that we, that we have here on this earth. Holy Spirit, help us see that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, one quick announcement. So... Uh, I'm going to be preaching today. Um, A few weeks ago, about three weeks ago, I preached on, I taught on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anybody remember that? So when I taught on it, I knew immediately as I was preparing that week, I was supposed to preach it. And then I thought, so I just put it in my pocket and I said, the next time somebody asks me to preach, that's what I'm going to preach. Well, then Henry called this week and said, you got anything to preach? And I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. So so if you've already heard it, I apologize beforehand. <laughs> so I'll try to mix it up a little bit and add in a little bit of extra to make it seem like it's different. But, but I just wanted you all to know it, it's coming. So if you want to go to another church, you know, and miss that, feel free. All right, thank you all very much.